Well, it's good to be back. Good to see you all. And again, I trust you had a very productive and restful break and are ready to roll up your sleeves and get to it the last couple of weeks of class. Last couple of weeks here in chapel, we want to round out our series on Romans 6 through 8. And to remind you, our theme this year is Walk, Live, Keep. And it's been a great encouragement for us to keep pressing on in our Christian lives, to grow as Christians. But what happens when something comes, in lo- uh, something comes along in life that leaves you reeling? What about the trials and hardships and heartbreak that we face all too frequently? How do you walk, live, keep then in those situations? In 2014, our youngest daughter, Sophia, who was four years old at the time, became very sick. We took her to acute care, and they quickly transferred her to emergency, where they informed us that she was in a state called diabetic ketoacidosis which can be life-threatening. They told us they needed to airlift her immediately to the University of Iowa Hospital. One of the hardest things I've had to do is to walk beside my little girl who was lying almost lifeless on a stretcher as they wheeled her to the helicopter and then watch them load her in and fly away not knowing what was going to happen. By God's grace, she responded well to the treatment, and in a few days she was feeling better, but she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is a condition she'll live with the rest of her life. I remember wondering at that time, why Sophie? What's the Lord's purpose in this? And what I kept coming back to was what I knew to be true about God and His Word, and and thoughts of God's sovereignty and wisdom and goodness and faithfulness washed over me in waves of tangible grace. And the text that I kept coming back to was Romans 8, 28. Do you ever face situations in life that make you wonder if God has any purpose in it all? Are there hardships that sometimes make you throw up your hands and say, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this? What do you do in those hard times? Some tell us, even some theologians tell us, there's there's no purpose in our sufferings. Oh, yes, God wants to comfort us, but He has no plan in our sufferings. David Bassinger, for example, says, we believe that much of the pain and suffering we encounter may well not lead to any greater good. He claims suffering has no positive or redeeming quality to it so that God should never be seen as intending suffering in order to bring about some good from it. Is that the message of the Bible? That God has no purpose in our suffering? No, that's not the message of the Bible. Thankfully, our passage here in Romans chapter 8 
holds out far more hope and comfort. Romans 8 declares that our trials and our suffering are not pointless. They're not meaningless. In fact, the big idea of our text is simply this, that God has good purposes in everything the believer faces, even the hard things. Chapter 8 of Romans, as we have been considering it over the last few weeks, is, is one of the great chapters of Scripture. And verse 28 in particular is one of the great verses of the Bible. John Stott says our verse has been likened to a pillow on which to rest our weary heads. John MacArthur says, for Christians, this verse contains perhaps the most glorious promise in Scripture. It is breathtaking in its magnitude. Well, first of all, in verse 28, God's good purpose for believers. Verse 28 again reads, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. The New American Standard Bible translates the phrase in verse 28, God causes all things to work together for good. The ESV has all things work together for good. And technically, that's the more literal translation, but it's important to recognize that Paul's not suggesting that all things just sort of happen to work out by their own, by chance, or on their own by chance for the good of believers. No, he means that God causes all things to work together for good. God is the one who has called us according to His purpose. God, in His sovereignty, works all things for the good of those who love Him. Now, there are a couple of things I want us to notice specifically about this promise. First of all, the parameters of the promise. The promise is, all things work together for good. But that statement doesn't apply to everyone. There's a qualification, actually a couple of qualifications. The promise is for those who love God and for those who are called according to His purpose. In other words, this promise is for Christians. And what, what a great way to describe believers as those who love God. We know, very plain, very obvious, that many people do not love God. Some are simply indifferent to God. Some actively hate God. They reject Him. They rebel against Him. They're angry at God. It's interesting how atheists can be angry at God, but nevertheless. That's our condition outside of Christ. Romans 3 says that, that there's no one who in themselves, in their fallen conditions, even seek after God. There was a lobbying group in Washington that was known as Godless Americans, and their goal was to remove God from public discourse. They, they said, for example, uh, our money shouldn't say, in God we trust, because we don't trust in God. But as Christians, by His grace, we love God. 
I hope that's true of you this morning, that you can honestly say you love God, even though, as Paul said in chapter 5, that we were once enemies of God. But through the death of Christ, we've been reconciled to God. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 11 says, we now rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we've come to see the beauties of our God, and we love Him. We, We love Christ, and that's a glorious thing. That's the way it is supposed to be as creatures of a, of a good and gracious God. We respond by loving Him. Yet before we get too self-congratulatory, Paul reminds us that our love for God is actually a result of His prior love for us. The other qualifying phrase is, for those who are called according to His purpose. That actually is the root of our love. It's in God's prior calling and purpose. Without God's calling, let's be honest, we wouldn't love God. We wouldn't love Him. This call is a, is, is a special call that breaks through our, our hard and sinful hearts and draws us graciously to Himself. If you are a Christian, God has called you according to His gracious purpose, and He has given you a new heart to love God. And the point of this text, with its amazing promise for you if you are a believer in Christ, is that this is for you. Take hold of it. Drink deeply from it. It's a resource that God has given to us. Rest your weary head on it. It's powerful medicine. Secondly, notice the promise itself. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, we need to appreciate the context here. So, look back at verse 18. Verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then Paul unfolds some of the sufferings of the present time. Verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, Christians, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we, are, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts and minds knows what the mind of the Spirit, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
These verses, therefore, are describing for us the present time, and they're painting the picture for us that the present time is, in fact, indeed, a a, a time of suffering. Creation itself groans. We groan, longing for the completion of, of our redemption. We experience weakness. And so, does this mean that the present time is just a matter of waiting it out, gritting your teeth, and bearing up until the day of glory? No. There's there's value in the present time, even in the sufferings of the present time. First of all, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is at work in us. He is interceding for us. He's helping us in our weakness. Sometimes we are so burdened. Have you ever experienced this? We're so burdened, we don't even know how to pray. We're overwhelmed. But Paul says the Spirit intercedes for us. Secondly, there's also the fact that God is at work in the circumstances of our lives, working out His good purposes right now. That's what verse 28 is saying. All things work together for good. That's a pretty comprehensive statement, all things. But again, in context, Paul is particularly thinking about the the bad things, the sufferings, the trials, the adversity, things we, we don't understand, things we can't make sense of. Even those things, God in His sovereign wisdom overrules and works for the good of the believer. Now, don't misunderstand. This text isn't promoting a a Pollyannish view of life in the sense that everything uh, that seems bad is actually good. Paul's not saying that all things are intrinsically good. If you get cancer or diabetes, that's not good. If someone has abused you in some way, that's not good. It is evil. But these things as Lloyd-Jones says, are so used by God and so overruled by God and employed by God that they turn out for our good. Do you hear the magnitude of that? I don't know what trial you're dealing with now, but I suspect that everyone could identify something hear this text. Take it in. It's saying that God is working it out for your good. Now, that doesn't mean that that things will turn out for your comfort and convenience so that you'll have an easy life and everything will work out the way that you want it to. That's not what Paul's saying. That's not the point. In fact, part of our problem is that we tend to define good according to what we want rather than what we know or God knows we need. We define good according to what makes us happy instead of what makes us holy. The point is that God has good purposes for you, and He'll he'll use even bad things to accomplish those good and holy purposes in our lives. 
Now, in the big picture, what is God's good purpose? What's the ultimate good that God promises us? Well, look at what Paul says next, the goal of God's good purpose, verses 29 and 30. For, so here's an explanation, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. All things work together for good because God has called us according to His purpose, and the goal of that purpose is unbelievably glorious. It's ultimately to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and bring every believer safely to glory. What Paul describes in these verses has been been often called the golden chain of salvation. In eternity past, God, think of this, God set His love upon us. He foreknew us, and He chose to bless us. He committed to saving us with the ultimate goal of conforming us to the image of His Son. Now, to be very clear, this was not due to anything He saw in us, certainly not any goodness in us, but not even our faith. He chose us, He predestined us according to His good purpose. And those He predestined, He also called. Again, this, was, this call wasn't an invitation that we could take or leave. It was God's gracious call breaking into our lives that overcomes our natural sinful rebellion against Him, our hardness of hearts against God. And it's a call that opens our eyes to see our deep need and and to see the beauties of Christ as Savior. This call effectually persuades us to say yes to Jesus Christ. Those whom He called, He also justified. That is, as Paul has been arguing earlier in Romans, that through faith in Christ, God declares us, ungodly sinners though we are, God declares us righteous. He forgives all our sin and He replaces it with Christ's own righteousness. He justifies us so that we are right with God. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is when our conformity to the image of Christ will be complete. Our bodies will be resurrected and made new. All vestiges of of sin and our sin nature will be gone forever. What a glorious thought that is. And we'll finally be free to do what we were created to do, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And indeed, forever, we will glorify God and enjoy Him. 
with increasing joy. Don't miss, don't miss that Paul puts the verb glorified in the past tense. But, of course, unlike the other verbs in verse 30, glorification is, is still future. I don't know about you, but I certainly haven't experienced glorification yet. But from God's point of view, the issue is settled. He's determined to, to glorify all those whom He's He's predestined and called and justified. That that means our future glory is so certain, so secure, that Paul can speak of it in the past tense. This really is the golden chain of salvation, and there are no broken links in this chain. No matter what happens in this life, our salvation is, is certain because it's rooted in God's good purposes. The point of our passage is to demonstrate that we can trust God even in the the midst of trials and suffering because God's purpose for us will not fail. So, all things really do work together for good for those who have been called according to His purpose. The Puritan writer John Flavel said this, the intent of the Redeemer's undertaking, undertaking was not to purchase for His people riches, ease, and pleasures on earth, but to mortify their lusts, heal their natures, and spiritualize their affections, and thereby fit them for eternity with God. You know, because of our sinful hearts and the influence of the culture around us, we may want to be wealthy and healthy and have trouble-free lives, as, as if that's the ultimate good. But God promises something so much better, that we will be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we grapple with this passage, and as, as we face real and difficult trials, Think back to the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph, as you remember, is sold into slavery by his brothers, and and while in Egypt, in his integrity and his refusal to commit adultery, all that lands him in an Egyptian prison on the basis of a false accusation. And there he languished for more than two years. But we know how the story turns out. God had good purposes in the evil that others inflicted upon Joseph, and God worked it out beyond, even beyond Joseph's personal good for the good of many people and ultimately to preserve the line of the Messiah. And when his brothers came and, and fell before Joseph, begging his forgiveness, he said to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring, about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
Now, with most of the struggles and trials that we face, we will not immediately understand. We will not see the good purpose that God is working in the hardship. With some of our trials, we'll be able to look back and and see some of what God was doing. But there are some things that we won't understand until glory. But we can understand this, that whatever the trial the hardship, the evil, the accident, the tragedy, the struggle, the persecution, the diagnosis, whatever it may be, God in His infinite wisdom has designed it as the path for you to glory. And He calls you in this text to trust Him, to believe in Him, with all your heart, even though you might not see the good just now. He's saying, hold on, you'll see it one day. Those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. You'll see it one day, and as Flavel said, it will seem then to be the right way to a city of habitation. I want to read to you the words of a hymn by William Cooper written in 1773. The hymn is entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Cooper, by the way, was a man who struggled very, very deeply with depression. You may know some of his story and the fact that John Newton was his close friend and spent much, much time trying to encourage him. But listen to these words. This is 18th century language, but it's rich. It's a, it's a boon for the struggling soul, and it's the theology of Romans 8:28. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea, and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. God has good purposes in everything you face as a believer, and He's calling us to trust Him. Lord Lord willing, next week we'll see as Paul continues in this passage that he reminds us in verse 32 that that God did not spare His own Son, but He delivered Him over for us all at the cross. And so, in the midst of your struggles and in, in your challenges, if you ever doubt God's love or His care for you, remember the cross. 
God is not up in heaven sending down trials simply to make our lives difficult. His Son went to the cross and took our judgment and our punishment in our place, and He died that we might live, that we might know His love and and behold His glory for eternity. And Paul says that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God's purposes for us are truly, truly good. As we close, let me ask, where do you go when you face difficulties? Where do you go mentally, spiritually, even physically? How do you deal with it? Do you get angry with God? Do you, do you blame it on the church or Emmaus or your family or someone else? Many people lapse into drinking or pornography or some other destructive habit. Is that what you do? Let me urge you, when the deep waters come, find refuge and hope in the mighty truth of Romans 8.28. Saturate your soul here. Remind yourself that God is working out His good purpose in your life even through this trial. It can be difficult to accept that God accomplishes His purposes through suffering and through trials. And Paul understood that. He knew about senseless persecution. He, he endured beatings and groundless imprisonments. At times he was fearful and trembling and full of anxiety. And yet he trusted God to achieve his purposes, and we should too. We may not understand what God is doing, but we know why he acts. He acts for our salvation. He acts for our good. He acts ultimately that we might enjoy the glory of our Savior forever.